0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Chapter 3, just one verse of scripture. We'll go from there and then we'll be looking at some other passages in a few moments. I want to say how honored I am to be able to be with you tonight. It's a great privilege for me. I have a tremendous respect. The Choi family, uh, Pastor Choi and his wife and their sons, and just uh, how we thank God for them. I did have the privilege of uh, being his pastor for just a short period of time in Hong Kong in the mid-'80s, as you mentioned. Uh, he was with, uh, I believe, the Lloyds of London, and uh, they had him, tra- they had him uh, stationed there for a short period of time and what a privilege it was to be able to have them as members of uh, there in Hong Kong. And uh, I'm assuming everybody speaks Cantonese in the room tonight. For the few of you that may not speak Cantonese, that's First Bible Baptist Church. <laughs> and uh, so we had the privilege of having them there at the Bible Baptist Church, and what a joy it was to be able to have them for a short time. I, 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 the, the, the thing I remember the most about uh, Pastor Choi, and of course he was not Pastor Choi, then he was uh, a businessman, a very successful businessman and his family. I remember going to their home for dinner on Hong Kong Island, and I remember the beautiful view that they had and uh, these large windows there in the living room. And I remember, his, uh, I remember my wife and I just thinking, wow. This is how the rest of the world, this is how the other half lives. <laughs> and then and then uh, they, they took his company, took him back to, I think, back to Korea from there. And then, and then I heard that he had left his business to go into the ministry. And I thought, why in the world would he do something <laughs> like that? <laughs> now he's going to find out how the other half lives. <laughs> and, uh, but seriously, how thrilled I was that uh, God had called him and that he was willing to leave. Uh, very successful business, and yet go into the ministry to try to reach people with the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says that we are to be ready to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man. Uh, I just re- remembered that I forgot to turn the microphone on. Got the sound. There we go. Duck me out. We good? All right. And uh, it says that we're to be ready. Always to give an answer to every man that asks us, asks us a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And tonight I want to take a few moments and perhaps take that, that verse a little bit out of context, but uh, I know that that verse is dealing with the fact that we are to be a, ready to give an answer for, to anyone who asks why we believe in Jesus Christ, why we believe that He is the Savior and, uh, and he, is, uh, he is the only Savior and only way to heaven. But I want to take that principle tonight of being able to, under, to explain why you're doing what you're doing, and I want to apply that to what we're doing in the 1040 window. Not long ago, I stepped away from what I had dreamed of and worked for for 40 years, and uh, as a young pastor, as a young preacher, started uh, preaching at the age of 24, started pastoring at the age of 24, and uh, for 40 years, I dreamed of having what we have at Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, and uh, of of having uh, just everything that we had there. And a few months ago, my wife and I, about six months ago, literally walked away from it. We resigned, and we left the church in order to found this missions ministry. And this ministry is going to take us to some of the poorest, and most dangerous countries in the world. And I did it at the age of 65. At the time, I was 65 years old. Yesterday, I turned 66. And so... (laughs) And so now, uh, even older than I was back in those days, six months ago when I re- resigned the church, the three most common questions that my friends said to me were these three things. Number one, they said, Dwight, what are you doing? And it wasn't like, what are you doing? It was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then secondly, they said, why are you doing this? And then thirdly, almost reluctantly, what do you need?
1: What are you doing?
0: Why are you doing it? What do you need? And so tonight, I want to take those three thoughts and, just, and, and try to explain that to you. Number one, what are you doing? What we're doing is we're helping to plant churches in the countries of the world that have the least access to the gospel. Now, we call this ministry Barnabas 1040. Barnabas tells the what and 1040 tells the where. If you think about it, every time Barnabas shows up in the Bible, he is the person who is coming alongside and helping. He's not out in the front. He's in the background. It was, the, it was Barnabas that uh, first shows up in Acts chapter, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, and he brings that money and uh, donates it to the church, and the the Bible records how the apostles changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, and because Barnabas means son of consolation, and that was was Barnabas. He was the the consoler, he was the helper. Acts chapter 9, you remember that Saul got saved, the chief persecutor of the church, who later becomes the apostle Paul. And whenever Paul gets saved, let's call him Paul, his name was Saul in Acts 9, but the apostle Paul gets saved. And when he gets saved, he gets all, totally on fire for God. But the Bible records how that in Acts chapter 9 there he had to flee the city of Damascus, leave Damascus under, under fear of, of his life. And so he goes down to Jerusalem, Saul does, and he tries to join the church. But the apostles did not let him into the church. They said, we don't believe you're really, an, you're really a disciple. We think you're coming to try to find out who we are and to, to take us to prison. And so it was Barnabas that comes alongside Saul, and he takes him to the, the, the apostles, and he testifies for, for Barnabas and says, or for Saul, and says, he's the real deal. Um, in Acts chapter 11, we see again when the church at Antioch is started, and the Gentile is going, the gospel is going to the Gentiles, and the, the apostles in Jerusalem hear what's going on with the Gentiles. They take Barnabas, and they ask Barnabas, because he was a good man, the Bible says in Acts 11, and they ask him to go up to Antioch and check it out. First missionary journey, it's Barnabas and Saul, and then it becomes Paul and and Barnabas. And Barnabas is always in the, he's always helping. So Barnabas tells the what? What we want to do is to try to help come alongside the national pastors in the 1040 window and facilitate them getting the gospel to their own people. The 1040 tells the where. The 1040 window is that rectangular area of Western Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Approximately 10 degrees and 40 degrees north latitude. Now, that area is often called the resistant belt. It includes the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. The thing that draws my wife and I to the 1040 window is the fact that it's the least evangelized part of the world. The least evangelized portion of the world. Jesus told us to get the gospel to every creature. And those who have the least access to the gospel overwhelmingly are living in that part of the world we call the 1040 window. Most of the countries in the 1040 window have less than 2% of their population that claims any kind of Christianity at all. They understand that whenever we say less than 2% that claim Christianity, uh, in, in, the, in those statistics would be all of the, anything that's, 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 that's Christian um, in, in that umbrella of Christendom. This would include Catholics, this would include the cults, this would include Bible believers, this would include born-again Christians. Less than 2%. Most of the countries in the 1040 window have one5 to 2% of their population that claim to be any kind of Christianity at all. Now, you think about this for a moment. 2%, less than 2%. If Now, I don't know what the percentage of Christians is in America. We claim something like 70%. Now, you and I both know that 70% of people in America are not saved. Uh, there's no way in the world that 3 out of 4 people that live in this country really know Jesus Christ. But in that, that claim, what would the, the real number be? Maybe 25%, 30%, 20%? I mean, a large, a, a, a large group, whatever it would be, that truly know the Lord. Think about this. If Jesus Christ comes tonight, if the rapture takes place tonight, America is in trouble tomorrow. If Jesus comes tonight, just like that, what, 25%, 30% of our people are gone? I mean, we're, we're in trouble tomorrow. If the rapture takes place tonight... It's business as usual in Bangladesh. In Bangkok, they're not even going to notice it. I mean, less than 2% of the people will be gone. 98% of the people just keep on going business as usual. There There are countries in the 1040 window, as Pastor Choi said, where you can be born, live, and die, and never, ever meet a Christian. I mean, never even see one. That's what draws us to that part of the world. Recently, I read a book by a man by the name of Claude Hickman, and I'm always a little bit reluctant to give statistics, Pastor, because, you know, we can, we, the, people pull them out of, the, out of the hat, it seems like, and you wonder where they got them. So when I give statistics, I'm going to tell you where I got them. I read a book by a man by the name of Claude Hickman, and um, the name of the book is Live Your Life on Purpose. It's a great book. And here's what Claude Hickman said. He gave some statistics about missions. He said that, for example, Iran has one missionary for every three million people. I don't know where he gets his numbers, but I'm getting them from, from, from Claude Hickman's book. He said, Iran, one missionary for every three million people. India has one missionary for every two million people. Vietnam has one missionary for every two million people. Now think about that for a moment. Not only are these people unreached, they're unengaged. Um, they're, they're, they're un, there's nobody, there are very few people looking for them. <laughs> Somebody said the only thing worse than being lost is being lost with no one searching for you. Pastor, may I use this water? <clears throat> the only thing worse than being lost is to be lost and not having anybody looking for you. These people are lost, and very few people are searching for them. The issue is not, is not going to hell. The issue is not being unsaved. <clears throat> the issue is not being unreached alone. The reality is that if you die and go to hell from Gardena, you're still in hell. If you die and go to hell from Los Angeles, you're still in hell. The issue is not where you were, where you lived before you died. If you die without Christ, you'll be lost forever, separated from God in a place called hell. But the issue is this at least if you live in Los Angeles, somebody is looking for you. If you are lost in Gardena, somebody is looking for you. They are searching for you. If you're lost, In Myanmar, in Burma, very few people are looking for you. You could be born, live, and die, and never even meet a Christian. That's what draws us to that area. Now, go on with these statistics. Iran, one missionary for every three million. India, one for every two million. Vietnam, one for every two million people. Mexico, one missionary for every 2,300 people. Peru, one missionary, according to Hickman, Peru has one missionary for every 240 people. Brazil, one missionary for every two hundred and seventy-six people. Argentina, one missionary for every one hundred and eighty people. Now, I'm not. I'm not preaching against going to Mexico. I'm. 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 You go. I think you got to go anywhere God calls you to go. I'm just trying to show you the imbalance here. We have a distribution problem. Uh, if you, if those statistics are anywhere near correct, we are sending the vast majority of our people. Where our missionaries, where the gospel already exists. And we're sending very few to the areas that are still waiting. Is this really how God planned it? I mean, the Bible tells us we're to take the gospel to every creature. So again, the issue is not being lost. The issue is being lost without anybody looking for you. The problem that our churches have is that too many of us want to go where the gospel already exists. We want to reach people, but we want it to be easy. As Pastor was saying earlier that Jimmy made the comment about 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 Japan. Um, we we, we want to we we see people saved, but we want to we see bucket loads of people saved. We want it to be easy to reach people. Why are these Buddhists and Muslims and Hindu countries called the resistant belt? Why do we call them the resistant belt? Because they're resistant. They're hard. They're not easy. There's a reason they're unreached. My friend, if the church, if the first church... If the church in Jerusalem had only gone where it was easy, we never would have gotten the gospel to us. I mean, where would they have gone? They were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I mean, not long before, they crucified the Savior. And yet, they were willing to go where it was difficult to go. I was preaching not long ago in a missions conference in, uh, in, here in, in Santa Maria, <coughs> the Coast Hills Baptist Church. And one of the missionaries got up and he gave a testimony. Here was his testimony. He said, whenever I was in Bible college, God's burdened my heart for Senegal, West Africa, a Muslim country. And he said, I had a desire to go in the 1040 window to Senegal, to, 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 an, to, to a Muslim country. And he said, I, I, we surrendered to go to Senegal. We talked about going to Senegal. And he said, the, the, the president of our Bible college called me into the office. And he sat down with me, and he said, the guy's first name is Pat. He said, Pat, he said, listen. Um, don't go to Senegal. You're a numbers guy. Here's what he said. He gave this testimony. Go to his Baptist Church. He said, the president of the Bible College said, Pat, you're a numbers guy. You're a good soul winner. You're a good bus worker. You know how to fill a bus up. You know how to draw a crowd. You know how to preach the gospel. You know how to give an invitation. Uh, you're a good soul winner. But Pat, you, could, you can reach many, many people with the gospel. You, you can lead, lead, lead lots of people to Christ. But you're not going to do it in Senegal. If you want to go to to Africa, go to Tanzania. It's easy to reach people in Tanzania. It's hard in Senegal. So Pat stood at the pulpit at Coast Hills Baptist Church a few weeks ago. And he said, so my wife and I, we went to Tanzania. And our pastor was correct. We saw many, many professions of faith. Hundreds of people got saved. But there was only one problem. God did not call me to Tanzania. He called me to Senegal. A Muslim country. You know where Pat is today? He's in Senegal, in a Muslim country, where God told him to go. The problem is that that we want to, so oftentimes in in our independent Baptist movement, we want to go where it's easy, rather than go where people have not yet heard the gospel. We work through established missionaries who provide accountability, which is crucial. We do not send money directly to nationals with no accountability. Now, it's not that we don't believe in nationals. We do. We believe that they are the key to reaching their own people with the gospel. But we believe that, that there, there needs to be some kind of accountability. I, I've got to be able to know, uh, before we send the money, who I, I need to know somebody that I trust who can vouch for these people's credibility. And so we send the money through American missionaries or Filipino missionaries or, or Korean missionaries or whoever we can find, that, that, that I can, can, can know and, 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 and be confident that what they're saying to me is correct. We send the money through the missionary. We have an exit strategy by reducing incrementally the amount of money that we send so that the church becomes indigenous. Now, in our video, I said five years, 20% a year. And we do some, some that way. But in reality, I don't care if it takes two years or 20 years. I'm not concerned with an artificial number. I'm concerned with a mindset. I want people to understand that we're not going to send you a check from America forever. We're going to help you we want to, but, but at some point, you need to teach your own people to give. And so a, a mindset, an understanding that, that the Bible works in any country, not just in America. We believe the best way to reach a country is through a partnership with their own people. In other words, missionaries, Western churches, national, national pastors working together. Hudson Taylor, the great founder of the China Inland Mission, wrote this. Listen to what Hudson Taylor said. I agree with him. Hudson Taylor the founder of the China Inland Mission, the man that we talk about today as being a great missionary. Here's what he wrote. I look upon foreign missionaries as the scaffolding around a rising building. The scaffolding around a rising building. The building is being built. There is scaffolding around a building while it's being built, right? I look at foreign missionaries as the scaffolding around a rising building. Listen the sooner it can be dispensed with, the better. The sooner you can take that scaffolding down, the better. Or rather, the sooner it can be transferred to other places to serve the same temporary use, the better. I I agree with him. I I think that it's a mistake for us to send missionaries to the field who then pastor churches for the rest of their lives, that are paid for with American money, that are never turned over to nationals, and then when the missionary dies or comes back to the, to the states, the church folds up. We're supporting a man in Thailand that's a perfect example of this. There was a missionary who went from America to, up in northern Thailand, a place called Nang Kai, and right across the border from Laos, up, up close to Burma. And, and, and uh, this missionary went to Thailand, American missionary went to Thailand, good man, loved God, loved the people, He married a Thai girl. He went as a single man. He fell in love with a Thai girl. They got married. He spent over 30 years in northern Thailand. And then he died. He died in the country. He had a church there. had about seven acres of property and a nice church building. And so he died. But there were no nationals trained up. There were no pastors. There were no preachers. There was just him and money from America. He died. The church dwindled down to almost nothing. People began to go back to their, to their, go about their business. And now there was nobody preaching in Nong in, in Kai. There's another missionary in Thailand, an American missionary by the name of Tim Searles. Tim and I, Tim's been over there for, for over there about 35 years now. Tim and I have been friends through the years. And he wrote me and he said, Dwight, I heard about what you're doing. And he said, I've got a guy. He told me the situation. And he said, could you support, I've got a national pastor named Bowie. And he said, could you support Bowie? And we'll put Bowie back in that, and we'll, we'll, we'll rebuild that church. Bowie speaks the language where they are. Tim is down uh, not too far from Bangkok. It's about a 15-hour drive up to where Nongkai is. And so Tim said, can you help Bowie? I said, maybe. Tell me, send me his testimony. Send me a photograph of him. I want to know, I want to know about his life and, and his calling, his salvation, his baptism. What, what, God, what he believes God wants him to do. So, so they translated everything, and I began to correspond with Bowie. I said, Tim, how much would he need to be full-time up on, in Nankai? He said, he needs $300 a month. I said, Tim, would Bowie be willing to, to go up there and revive that church, bring it back again, and with the understanding that we're going we're gonna to decrease the support uh, incrementally 20% a year over a five-year period? He wrote back. He said, and Bowie, we, be, we just corresponded back and forth. I'd never met Bowie, but I knew Tim. I didn't have to know, Tim boy. I needed to know Tim. I needed to know somebody. We supported. We began supporting him. I've since been to Nankai. I've met I've met boy, fine, fine, young man. and they're doing a great job there, bringing that church back with the understanding that this time, let's have that church that's that's being supported by Thai people. Now, I told boy five years. Honestly, I don't care if it takes fifteen years. What I care about is that boy understands. That this time, let's build that church. And again, for, missionaries are wonderful. Missionary, we need missionaries. We need both. I'm not preaching against missionaries. We need both. In fact, we don't work with a guy unless he's got, attached to a missionary. I have people write me all the time. From, from Oman, from Pakistan, from India. And they say, I'm in the 1040 window. I've been to your website. Can you send me money? <laughs> well, you know, I wish I could, Honestly. I don't, I don't know. The, I mean, I, tr- I trust them, but, but I can't. I can't because I don't know them. I mean, there's too many scams now. There's too many people that can get Internet access and find a website and write and say, give me money. <laughs> I tell them, look, you're going to have to be connected to some missionary that I can know and I can, that, that can vouch for you. Um, I've got to know somebody who knows you. My wife and I are moving... Over to southern China uh, this coming, uh, this coming in, in 2017. We're going to be over there this summer, June, July, and August. But we're moving there permanently in 2017. And the reason we're moving there is because we need to be close enough to the people where we can, we can, we can check people out. We can vouch for them. Make sure that they are what they are. What so number one, what are you doing? Number two, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it, they say. All right, so we're trying to, we're trying to get some folks into that 1040 window. Those countries that are the least, have the least access to the gospel. Why? Well, the simple answer is that we believe it's God's plan. We believe that God's desire is that every nation, every people group have an opportunity to be saved. God is on a mission. That mission is to gather worshipers from every nation, every people group on earth. Look, if you would, please, at Psalm 86. In Psalm 86, the psalmist makes a statement. And you could, if you stop and begin to trace this through the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we see that God's desire is that all nations would come to Him. And Psalm 86 and verse 9, notice the, 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 the wording here. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, shall glorify thy name. All the nations. Uh, God's desire is that all nations would be saved, would have the opportunity to be saved. World missions is about an absence of worship among people that were created to worship the one true God. People were not created to worship Allah. They were created to worship God. They were not created to worship Buddha or multitudes of gods. They were not created to worship nature. They were created. There's there's an emptiness inside. There's a desire inside to know their creator, the true God. They were created to worship God, and yet they're worshiping gods that are false gods because they don't know the true God. That's why we're doing this. Why are you doing this, they say, Dwight? Because God's, goal, God's plan is to gather worshipers from all the nations. It began with a promise to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God said to Abraham, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God blessed Abraham and said, From your descendants will come the Messiah, the Savior, and in thee all the families, all the nations, all the people groups of the earth are going to be blessed through your, through your descendants, through, through, through Jesus. That's always been God's plan. God's plan never was that we would have just certain uh, places where the gospel was and then great multitudes of people, billions of people that do not have the gospel and then a small portion over here where we do have access to the gospel. God wants people from every people group. I think that they say, why are you doing this? I, I think it's what we're supposed to do. I think it's what God wants. I think God wants us to get the gospel to every nation. Not only that, but I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 24. I feel as if that I have a personal responsibility to do this. My friends say, why why are you doing this? To be honest with you, I don't know how not to do this. How can you not do this? Um, How how can we know that there are billions of people that are still waiting to hear the gospel and just ignore it? Proverbs chapter 24. Why would anybody do that? In Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 11, the Bible says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn into death, those that are ready to be slain. So God is putting a picture here. The picture is that there's a group of people that are going to die. They're delivered unto death. They're ready to be slain. And and you you um, you could help them. You could stop them from dying. But you don't. That's why he says, if thou forbear, to deliver them. They're going to die, so the picture is that there's a group of people here, it's as if they're, they're, they're walking off the cliff to certain death. And you are standing there, and you're watching them go, and you could stop them. You could deliver them. You could, you could help them. But you don't. If thou forbear. You say, I'm not going to do it. Why would somebody do that? Why, why would you... Why would we, we see someone who, who, who is going to die, and we could save them, but we don't? Years ago, whenever my wife and I were first getting started in the ministry, we, had, we have three daughters. They're all grown now, and we have nine grandchildren. They're all married, my, our daughters are all grown and married, but, and now we have nine grandchildren. But back in those days, we had a little girl, our first little girl and our second little girl. The first little girl was about three years old, and the second... Girl was a baby, less than a year old. One Saturday morning, I was out visiting, and and, uh, my wife was home with the children, and somehow the the roof of our house was on fire in Redwood City up in the Bay Area. The roof was on fire. She didn't know. The smoke had not yet come into the house. So we have a three-year-old daughter. We have a little nine-month-old daughter, and my wife is in the house. Our neighbor happened to come outside from, from, from across the street. He walked outside, and he looked, and he saw that our our roof was on fire. Our house was literally burning down. And my wife and daughters are inside and don't even know they're in danger. So my neighbor, here's the picture. He's looking, and he's seeing that they're in danger. You know what he did? He ran across the street. He opened the door. He ran into our house and started screaming, Get out of the house. The house is on fire. He looked over, and Angie, our oldest daughter, was three years old at the time, he, he saw her sitting at the, at the little dining room table d- working with some coloring books. He ran over. He picked her up in his arms. He's screaming, get out of the house. My wife was in the kitchen. She runs around from the kitchen. She sees this man, our neighbor, holding our daughter, and he's saying, get out of the house. The house is on fire. And into the bedroom, she went into the into the into the crib, she picked up Janelle, our middle daughter, and they went running out of the house as the house is burning. Maybe he saved their lives that day. I don't know. But why would you not do that? I mean what would what, what would I expect my neighbor to do? Come over and say, Hey look, your house is on fire. <laughs> Wonder if anybody's in the house? Not my problem. I think I'll go watch TV. Why would you do that? They're going to die. You can help them, but you don't. You forbear. Look again at verse 11. Thou forbear. Why would somebody not help them? Verse 12. If thou sayest, behold, we knew it not. You know what these people are saying? They're saying, I didn't know. My friend said, why, why are you doing this? I can't tell God I didn't know. I can't, I don't have that excuse. I can't say to God, Oh, I didn't know people were lost. I didn't know people who die without Jesus spend eternity in hell. I didn't know. I do know. I know. Now, maybe you don't know, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I, I do. I know that people are lost. I feel that I have a personal responsibility. I cannot stand before God someday and plead ignorance. I know there are millions of people in that part of the world. Millions of them. There are billions there, but there are millions of them who have not yet heard the name Jesus. And there are even more of them that have heard the name of Jesus, but they've never had a clear presentation of the gospel. Millions and millions of people. I know they're there. I know they're waiting. I know they live and they die, many of them without ever hearing about Jesus Christ. Instead of cursing the darkness, let's go shine the light. There's another reason. They say, Dwight, why are you doing this? God's command, God's desire to see people saved. My personal responsibility. I think there's another reason that we oftentimes ignore in our circles, and I think it's a mistake. Look at Proverbs chapter 21, if you would, please. In Proverbs 21.13, I think I think that it's something that we don't emphasize enough in our independent Baptist circles, but I believe that God has a great love for the poor. And I believe God wants us to help the poor. He wants us to get the gospel to them, those who are suffering. In Proverbs 21.13, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. My wife and I live just a few minutes from Disneyland. Disneyland is the magic kingdom. But everybody knows Disneyland is not real. Nobody thinks Disneyland is real. It's the magic kingdom. It's a place where we go to fantasy land and we, and we ride rides and we see things and, and then we go home to reality. But in our world today, there are two kingdoms, real kingdoms, real people. America is the magic kingdom. It's a wonderful place to live. People are willing to do almost anything to get to America, to live in the magic kingdom. In the magic kingdom, kids are encouraged to dream about what they might become, and then go chase their dreams. In the magic kingdom, people struggle with first world problems. In the magic kingdom, we struggle with problems like, where should we go for dinner tonight? What would be the best way to decorate our home? What what color should we do? Should we should we remodel the kitchen? Should we what, what what color should we paint? What color scheme should we go with? What motif should we have? Should we have a uh, have a have a, a, a nautical theme in our in our decorations? Should we what should we do in our decorating our home? Where should we invest our excess money? Should we have a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, four hundred three B? Should we have a should we hire a financial uh, advisor or should we just take care of our money ourselves? Look, again, this is the magic, it's the wonderful place to live. I thank God for the magic kingdom. I thank God I live in America. In the magic kingdom, we struggle with things like what kind of car should we drive? Should we get an SUV, crossover, a sedan? Where should we go on vacation? Should we take a cruise this year? Should we go to Mexico? Should we go to Disney World? Should we stay, take a have a, and maybe this year we should have a staycation and just stay home and, and see the sights in the area around us? Or maybe we should stay home this year and take the money and invest it in, in, in remodeling the house instead? First world problems, uh, places, things that we struggle with in the magic kingdom. The people that we're winning to Christ never worry about those things, they never, they never have to figure out where to go on vacation how to decorate their homes. You see, they don't live in the magic kingdom. They live in outside the borders of the magic kingdom, in a much larger kingdom. Almost four billion people live in this kingdom. I call it the tragic kingdom. They don't live in the magic kingdom in the 1040 window. They live in the tragic kingdom. In the tragic kingdom, millions of people go to bed hungry each night in fact, about 1 billion people today are chronically short of food. Many of them are slowly starving to death. In the tragic kingdom, most citizens have very little access to clean drinking water. 783 million people have no access at all. Instead, they walk miles each day to dip their buckets in dirty water that makes them sick, and they bring it back home. It slowly kills their children. When I'm, when I'm in the 1040 window, I never... Ever drink the water unless it's bottled water or we boil it. Never. Never. But there are places where they don't have access to this. They don't have any choice but to drink that bacteria-laden water that they get from the river. In the tragic kingdom, more than one-third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. More than 75% live on less than $10 a day. If you earn an annual income tonight of $13,000, you make more money than 90% of the people in the world. In the tragic kingdom, Christians are beheaded. Little girls, the, the ages of my granddaughters, 10 and 11 years old, are taken as slaves and given to ISIS soldiers. I'm not making this up, folks. It's true. We don't want to we don't want to hear about it. But they're still there. In the tragic kingdom, people sell their children to men who tell them the children will be taken somewhere to receive an education or on a job. In the Himalayan mountains above Nepal, there are entire villages. Entire villages where there are very few young girls. I'm making this up. Where men come from Kathmandu, the capital, and they go up into the villages, and they come with their Buddhist greetings, and they talk to the people, and they tell them that if you were giving me your little daughter, your little nine-year-old girl, I'll give you $100 for your little nine-year-old. I mean, incredible amount of money. And this nice man comes and says, he'll give you $100 for your little girl. 12,000 rupees, I think it is. And, we'll, and we're, and we're going to take your little girl down to the capital. And she's going to go to school. She's going to learn how to read and write. We're going we're to teach her how to work. She'll work in a factory or she'll work in house cleaning. And she'll be able to, to learn something and get out of this life that you have in this village. These people, they, they don't... They don't they, they're, they're ignorant, and I, I don't say ignorant in a, in, a, in, a, in a negative sense. I mean, they're ignorant as far as they can't read and write. They don't, they don't have back. They don't know what's going on in the city. All they know is that their, their little girl has no hope in this village there other than living like they live. And so they give their children, their little girls, little eight, nine-year-old girls, ten-year-old girls, to a man who promises to take them to Kathmandu where he will, where they'll be educated, and the little girl goes off with her with this man. The little girls go. They go down to the they go down to the capital. And the first thing they do is they give them alcohol, and then they rape them. He said, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't want to tell it either. I got granddaughters that age. I sometimes can't sleep at night because I think about my little my granddaughters. I thank God they're born in the magic kingdom. They don't live in the tragic kingdom. You say, what can I do? I don't know. Maybe we could pray. I've got a contact in Singapore who goes up into those villages and preaches in those Himalayan villages above Nepal. And he and I are going together. In fact, we're going together soon up into those villages to try to, to try to see what we can do to help. So why would people do that? You, 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 you don't understand. They, they, they not only don't have the gospel, they don't have all the, the, the support systems we have. My wife and I met a girl about 27, 28 years old in, I mean in, in, in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, in the capital of Cambodia. Christian girl. She's already made a profession of faith, trusted Christ as her savior. Had a little, has a little baby, a little son. And she was all excited because she just signed a contract to go to Malaysia for $300 a month to work for a three-year contract, $300 a month per month, per month for three years. And in Malaysia, she's going to be a maid. She's going to clean houses and, and, and hotels and things for $300 a month. And the missionary told me, he said, you know, he said, in this part of the world, this is quite common. And sometimes they're legitimate. That girl, she's in Malaysia now. Thai is her name. Thai may may she may be a maid in Malaysia, but they're also a front for the sex trade. She may be a prostitute now. Is it, and, and, and I'm thinking, why would she do this? I mean, here, here's her husband. Why 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 would he let her do this? I can't I, I can't picture this, Pastor. But, but you, the hopelessness of their situations. And it's not just the gospel. And the gospel is the number one thing they need. But not only that, they need, they need churches in their own language with their own people. They need pastors who can speak to them without an interpreter. They need people who live among them. Not somebody who just comes with an interpreter like me and, and visits with them and gives them the gospel then goes back to the hotel. They need people who live with them. They don't have a Bible to read. They don't have a God to crawl, out to crawl out to. They don't have a local church. You know, if you're in trouble and you're a member of this church, Bible Baptist Church, you have a pastor you can talk to. You have people you can network with. You, you say, I've lost my job. There's people that, that can, you can network. You can, you can pray for each other. You can encourage each other, people to help you. They don't have that stuff. Why are you doing this? I just, I don't know. <laughs> what, am I, what else am I going to do? I mean, I'm, 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 I was 65 years old when I left our church. As God began to deal with our heart, I, I, I told my wife, I said, sweetheart, how long can we stay at Liberty? I mean, we can stay. We don't have to go. There was nobody, it wasn't like anybody, nobody was saying, our deacons weren't coming to me saying, well, you know, Pastor, you're going to be 65 pretty soon. (laughs) You thinking about retiring? No. No, I could stay. We still had, we we just built two new buildings, and and church was growing, and and, and new people are still coming. I mean, young couples are there. It wasn't like they were saying, you know, hey, you're getting old. In fact, the truth is that, that in some ways, I think I was more effective with young couples because of my age. Because of the fact that I have children and grandchildren. My my, wife and I have been married for over 40 years. I think they like that. They like that stability. But someday we have to go. I told my wife, sweetheart, someday we have to go. How long can we stay? Until I'm 70? 75? 80? At some point, we need to turn this church over to a younger man. Why not do it now? while we still have the energy and the strength and the mind, to go start this new ministry and see if we can help people who desperately need help. And she said, whatever you think we should do, babe, let's do it. And I thank God that she's willing to go. I don't know how to tell God why we didn't do it. Let me let me wrap this up. Look at this verse again, Proverbs twenty one thirteen. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. I'm going to ask you a question. Why did God allow you to be born in America, or to move to America, instead of somewhere in the ten forty window? Um, do you have any responsibility? To those who who can 't live in the magic kingdom, God has blessed my wife and I and incredibly when, 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 honestly, preacher, you guys were probably the same way when we got married, we were dirt poor I mean nothing. we just had nothing. I was twenty one she was nineteen we didn 't have a clue what we were doing. We got married. Uh, You know, we were, we had no money, we had no, we had nothing. And through the years, God has just blessed us and blessed us and blessed us with more and more and more. And at some point, I had to say, honey, why has God blessed us? And really, just go back, why did God bless Abraham? You are blessed to be a blessing. Has God really blessed you financially, for example, so that your standard of living could increase? Or maybe has God blessed you so your standard of giving could increase? Maybe God doesn't want you to just keep getting more and more stuff. Maybe he wants you to give more and more. Dwight, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? The number three, Say what do you need? I'm going to tell you what I need. I'm going to be totally honest. Here's what I need. I need for America to have strong local churches with godly people in them. I need for Bible Baptist Church to be a strong church. That's what I need. I need for you to be a New Testament church that's united, that's strong, that is is praying, and going and soul winning, and and you're not arguing among yourself. That's what that's what every missionary needs. If the churches in America are falling apart, then who's holding the ropes? We need strong, local New Testament churches here in America. And the second thing I need is I need your dimes. You say, yeah, you are old, aren't you? You're blowing it. You mean you need my dollars. No, 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 no. I need your dimes. Your other missionaries need your dollars. I need your dimes. Here's why. Your other missionaries need your dollars because it, it costs a lot more for a foreigner to move to a field. I needed your dollars in Hong Kong. <laughs> 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 Yours, <were>, you <laughs> the people's, you know, in the States. I needed your dollars. Hong Kong was expensive. My wife and I had to go to language school. I, I, we had to figure out what to do for our school and for our children. My, my daughter and her husband are missionaries to China. Our youngest daughter. That, I don't know if you, remember, if you remember our youngest daughter, Rebecca. She's a missionary to China now. They need your dollars. Because they have, to, they have to go to language school. They have to do something for the homeschool for their kids. These guys I'm supporting, they don't go to language school. They already speak the language. They don't have to have a, a separate kind of housing. They live in the same housing as everybody else does. They don't have to have, you know, a Jeep you know, or a four-wheel drive vehicle. They take the bus. They, they, they live like everybody else lives. They need your dimes. I'm so excited about this. We just took on this week. We just took on, and and you know what this means. You know what that means? When your pastor does this, here's what it means. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) But when a guest speaker does this, especially a missionary, it means he's going to (laughs) stop. So, I'm going to stop. I'm so excited about this. We are... We just took on this last week uh, a missionary in, in China, a national pastor in China, and one in, in Indonesia. Now, here's why I'm so, I'm so pumped about this. We already, we already support people in communist Laos, in, uh, in, in uh, Thailand, in, in uh, Cambodia, uh, but, but I'm so excited, excited about this because China is the largest communist country in the world, and Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And now we're and now we've got We got a little inroad into those countries. And and, I, and I'm praying that this is just a little light that's gonna it's gonna it's gonna start it gonna ignite. And as the years go by, we're gonna see more and more and more all over the, all over those countries. But but get this. These guys we took on in Indonesia. As I talked to the missionary and said, how much do they need? Here's what here's what he said. If they lived in Jakarta, the capital on the island of Java, which, I, which I've been to, he said, you've been to Jakarta, you know Jakarta, they would need three to $400 a month to live. But he said, they don't live in Jakarta. They live on the island of Borneo. They're out in the, in the jungles. $80 a month will support them and their family while they plant churches. Wow. I couldn't go to Indonesia and live on $80 a month. No way. Impossible. Buxing in Mandarin. <laughs> Buxing. I mean, just couldn't happen. Mdukla um, in, in, in Cantonese. I mean, just couldn't do it. But they can. We, we need your dimes. We can literally put these guys on the field for as little as $80 a month to as much as $400 a month. Some places in China, it's going to be 1000 a month. But they can get to the field and they can do the work. I'm done. In closing, I want to ask you three questions. Question number one is this. What are you doing? What are you doing? Question number two is this. Why? Whatever you're doing, why are you doing it? I I was preaching in Sacramento the other day. A guy comes up to me after the service. He said, Dwight, I'm 59 years old. He said, let me tell you what I'm doing. I go to work every day. I come home, I eat, I watch TV, I sleep, and then the next day I do it again. I'm doing nothing with my life. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against w- going to work every day. I'm not against watching TV or eating or sleeping. But you've got to have a reason why you're going to work every day. You, 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 you're going to work every day to make money, to take care of your family, to glorify God, to be a witness at work, and to give. So you can, help, you can help further the gospel. There's a reason for what you're doing. Why are you doing it? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Number three, what do you need? What do you need? What would God have to do in your life to, to, for you to say, I, wanna, I, wanna count, I want my life to count for God. I want to make a difference in the world. Every day people in my generation the baby boomers every day there's 10,000 of us that turn 65 in America somewhere I cannot believe that God's plan for my generation was that you work for 40 years you turn 65 and then you spend the rest of your spend the next 20 years playing golf and watching TV God's got a purpose and a plan for our lives it's something more than just existing What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What do you need?